You're listening to the NAGRA Podcasters Network. It's the so-called well-adjusted in the average people, which are the ones we have to break out of apathy because things have been going so well for them their entire lives to actually view and to understand the hardships of another outside of a physical contribution or a like on Facebook, they haven't really been involved. So we see these people that have suffered so much that are becoming the leading voices of all of these movements. In the heart of the One Dish with One Spoon Treaty territory, Nagrin's Sean Vanderclis and Carl Dockstader dish on any and all issues from a First Nations perspective. From pipeline politics to poverty to pan-Indianism and more, Sean shares his concrete curve leg take and Carl gives an urban Oneida angle. You are listening to One Dish, One Mic on the Niagara Podcasters Network. What are you working on and why should people help you work on it? Right now, the main thing that I'm involved with is the prayer walk for missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls. Um, we do have a traditional name for it, which I massacre every time I try to say it. Oh, awesome. So what is um, it? <laughs> I'm going to try to say it. <laughs> please tell us more. Uh, please. Donamamen Mosiang Gwe Gongichi Gaz Jig Kwewag. That was not butchered at all. It, yeah, no, <laughs> no. That's fantastic. Um, it translates roughly out to, uh, we will actually, it translates to, we will walk, we will walk in prayer for these murdered women. And it's an indigenous led initiative to help the healing process of the families that have been affected by this. But also it's to bring attention to the wider community to let them know that we are still currently living through this. That it's not just a news blurb on CTV. This is an everyday thing. And it's our intention for this cross-country walk, uh, starting in St. John's, Newfoundland, leading to Prince Rupert, BC, then up through the Yukon, Northwest ter uh, Territories, and then back to St. John's, to involve the community, to raise awareness of this plight, which has affected almost every family uh, within the Indigenous community on Turtle Island. Wow. All right, let's uh, let's start at the beginning, uh, or actually, first, let's make it simple for the listeners. What's the easiest way for people to help? Is there someplace they can go? Um, there is uh, the face Facebook page that we have for this program. Is um, the Facebook page that long Anishinaabe? Name? It is the oh, okay. long Anishinaabe name. Um, yeah, we'll, we'll also post a link to it on One Dish One yeah, Mike to make it easier for the listeners, and we'll put it in the show notes. Yeah, cool. Great. Um, yeah, so right now, that's the best way. We're seeking to work further with uh, government agencies on all levels, from municipal to provincial to federal. And it's in our hopes, by bringing in these outside uh, government agencies, that not only are we able to make sure that we have the resources necessary, but also that we have their participation. Because as much as this is an issue which affects us as an Indigenous community, it also affects the larger community at large because what it implies is that there are these women going missing. So it's not just within our community that these women are going missing. They're going missing along highways. They're going missing in towns. So that implies that there is a problem with individuals within communities at large abducting women regardless of their uh, national identity. So we have a problem of safety within our 
within our own communities to the point where women go missing and it's usually marginalized women. So our people on the streets, our people that are going through emotional issues, which may be mentally unstable, uh, perhaps they've fallen on bad times and have resorted to sex work. So a really vulnerable sector of the population is at risk here. So this implies that there is also another small section of the population which is preying on these people. And that's part of the thing that we need to address. And if we can make the community aware of these problems, then there's more likely, uh, there's a more likelihood of us actually finding a solution. That's uh, that's a take that I've never really thought about, to tell you the truth, that above and beyond the fact that unfortunately we have so many of our women that are that are in marginalized situations so many of our community members at large but then there there is the whole other side of it that that western society canadians uh north americans have this problem with having a lot of people that are able to prey on these on on these people that are that are in downtime right Mm -hmm. i think the feminists sometimes talk about how uh there's a show on this network called the practical feminist and uh i don't know if they talked about it on the show but i've heard feminists say that i mean if there wasn't a market for um objectification of women for marginalization of women the whole porn industry a whole bunch of sort of complex factors that that lead to this then these women that were vulnerable would get helped by people driving by them on the side of the road as opposed to perhaps picked up, used, and discarded. Mm-hmm. One of the biggest proponents against the murdered and missing Indigenous women's inquiry was that Stephen Harper would allege that these are just on individual case-by-case situations and less less to do with a societal um, view that Indigenous women were less than. That's why he never wanted to bring the inquiry forward. He said, you know what, we don't need a study. We need justice for the people who are committing these crimes, not understanding that it's more than just the individual, it's society's view on these people. And that's why they're resulting in being murdered and missing. This is true. Um, There's also another view that the continuation of this plight it's been recorded at least since 1981. Uh, there's one number from the RCMP which has been updated. I'm not 100% on the new updated number, but it was last estimated that 1,181 women have either been murdered or missing. And the missing number is a lot smaller. I think it might be 180 something. And then the rest are murdered. So what that implies is over that length of time without any action being brought forward with these family members being essentially pushed aside by the police agencies, whether it's provincial police, regional police, or RCMP, is that this is in essence a continued subtle genocide. These are our women. This is where our future comes from. Each each woman that is lost represents a generation. So not only have we lost this woman in particular, but we've lost the generations that she held in potential inside of her. So it's powerful. It's unfortunate. It is something which other people are unable to see because they don't necessarily hold the same appreciation that we hold for our women and the roles that they play in our community. So to have first our children taken from us through the residential school program and the 60s scoop, to now having the missing and murdered indigenous women's issue, it kind of shows the lack of involvement on the government side to ensure our safety, which apparently they're supposed to be our war, uh, we're wards of their state. 
So why are we not being protected? Why are we not being encouraged to grow as a peoples? Well, at the root cause of it, this is racism continued. People make the claims that Canada is a racist, uh, free state, or that it is uh, not nearly as bad as the United States of America, but that's not the case. No. The fact that our women are disproportionately being uh, abducted or murdered at a higher rate than any other citizen is is alarming and it's very telling of the country that we live in from my perspective one of the things that that i've heard from non-indigenous listeners is that um they sometimes have a hard time relating to our situations right like it's we all i'm sure have enough contacts from from our own backgrounds that i mean when i when i see a sex trade worker or when i see a homeless person i mean i I think of the times in my life or the lives of my friends and family when when i was closer to that situation than when i was you know spending maxing out the credit card going back to school shopping or whatever people are worried about at this time of year right so but what like how can you bring it home for our listeners like can you really for for joe average canadian that's sitting out there and can't relate to this like do you have any stories that you could tell or anything that, that would help them really appreciate the humanity of the situation? I, I try to think of it this way. Um, if we're empathetic, if we can imagine the situation. So imagine your loved one, your your sister, your daughter, your niece, your cousin, your aunt, your mother. One day, just regular routine. And then they don't message you. And it's like, okay, well, they might be busy that day now extends into two days and they still haven't gotten back to you. So are you concerned at this point or are you thinking I've done something to offend these people? So you now have two days of missing your, your, your relative. And then the third day comes, all right, so you have to do something. You start calling family members. Family's like, no, we thought they were with you. No, we haven't heard from them. So on and so forth. Now you make a report to the police. Now you have to say, this was the last time I saw this person. You actually have to begin to live it, right? Now, hopefully our listeners never have to go through this experience. Hopefully they will be heard when they do uh, come forward with their uh, report. A lot of the times when people of our community come forward with a report, it is not heard. It is usually assumed, oh, they're off getting drunk. Don't worry about it. They'll be back in a few days. And that has been a common story we've heard from almost every family which has come forward to speak about the loss of one of their loved ones is that it's either they have an addictions issue or at one point in time they had been a sex worker. So when we lose the humanity of these individuals, which are our family members, we then lose the significance of their disappearance. When you're able to see that each disappearance is practically the disappearance of your sister, your mother, your daughter, then you're able to see the significance of this issue, which we're facing. That was a, that was a powerful, that was a powerful <laughs> story. Um, I, I really, really think it's important for our listeners to realize that that when these things happen, I mean, it is it is our loved ones. We we had a community member, uh, unfortunately, 
recently go go missing and i don't want to i mean i don't want to politi- politicize someone's personal tragedy and that that's what's tough yeah. because i want to raise attention and awareness but then when this situation happened it's deeply personal it's it was frustrating to work with i actually honestly thought that the nrp did a did a pretty good job but because we we had a community member that had gone back and forth from toronto to niagara yeah. in niagara we were able to to come together as a community and to channel resources and to go walking around and looking but trying to deal with toronto it was like like maybe it's not their fault but some of us got the impression that like this is so routine what do you expect yeah. from us this is a needle in a haystack right mm-hmm. like you're you're asking us to look for somebody and we're already looking for here's the stack of yeah. of cases here's the wall full of, of people. people and and again it's I think that it talks to the sort of inhumanity of, of a colonial society that they would even allow the, the, that stack to pile up, right? If it were my sister, if it were my mom, if it were my daughter, mm-hmm. that's, that's all I would do. I mean, the fact that you have to wait, what is it, 24 hours before yeah. you can legally declare somebody missing and file a report, I mean, kind of speaks to where this stands. Um, a lot can happen in 24 hours. Mm. A lot can happen. Like even going back to like the whole Tim Bosma case, it's not relevant to missing and murdered Indigenous women, but he was picked up at his house by people looking to purchase a truck, and he was dead within two hours. Yeah, yeah, two hours. I mean, so put that into context with somebody who um, is living a little more dangerous lifestyle, who is a little more transient, traveling from city to city uh, via hitchhiking or busing or without proper means of communication. Like you can. You can just feel for them. You know what I mean? Very true. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Well, from what you guys just spoke on, you touched upon a subject which is often overlooked within the media. And it's often referred to as white woman syndrome. Missing white woman syndrome. And as you mentioned, we don't want to politicize some families' loss. But sometimes those are shining examples of the disparity in between the resources allocated for the colonist society and our society. And one of those disparities is, the, I believe, it's the Cashaway family. I'm not exactly sure whether from, I know, somewhere in like the Prairie Province area. Mm-hmm. Um, essentially, they made a report of their daughter being missing. And the police, once again, said, oh, no, she's probably out getting drunk. They, they knew better. They mm-hmm. know their daughter. She's not that type of person. But yet the police insist, give it time. Yeah. So this family pleaded for help from the community and they ended up having maybe a hundred people, 120 people, I believe. And they went through swamps and through rivers and through valleys and just expending all of the resources that they had, which wasn't much. They're a reserve family from a reserve community. And as you know, those, those funds are limited. So they expended everything that they had to no avail. Shortly after that, a white lady goes missing. There were thousands of people that showed up. They actually drained the river so that they can search the riverbed. So we see this difference in between a Native woman going missing, where there is an actual epidemic in place in our nation addressing our, our ladies. And then you have this colonist woman go missing and immediately helicopters, Mm -hmm. uh, all of this infrastructure being used to ensure this woman's safety. But yet when one of our sisters go missing, we don't see yeah. the same effect. Yeah, We're putting in our financial resources and our manpower and our, our family and friends. We're using all the all of our means necessary to get across the fact that she's missing. 
when the police could easily do that with a, a simple post, right? Yeah. Well, one of the things also with the police is what I learned is there are police uh, association boards. And one of the things that they will do, especially in terms of the missing and murdered uh, Indigenous women's inquiry, is if it puts them in bad public light, they're not going to reveal the information. There are families who want to come forward, but because of the legal ramifications or the implications of one branch not doing their job, the police boards will essentially try to squash this family's report. Wow. So, yeah, we have we have that that we're dealing with. And a lo- thing that other people don't know is the Missing and Murdered Indigenous Inquiry is actually 14 separate organizations acting, acting under one umbrella. So each of these organizations have to follow um, municipal regulations, provincial re- regulations, and then federal regulations. So right there, we're already dealing yeah. with a massive amount of legislation in order to move forward on something that is essential to us. So on the legal aspect, depending on the province, you have to work under these guidelines, which is a hindrance. Mm-hmm. How are we able to achieve a result if we have to jump through hoop after hoop after hoop just to get a possible maybe? It's counterproductive. So there is, I understand the reason why people are calling for an end to the inquiry. But yet at the same time, this inquiry has set up the amount of resources that have been allocated towards it and the programs that they have set up are useful programs the problem is that there is very little involvement from the community in the sense of true healing so there was like an opportunity for the families to come forward to speak about their loss now a lot of families did not have the means to come they were on they live far away in reserves up north which can only be flown in things of these nature uh just time like people have to go to work people have families as much as their families have been affected they still have to continue living mm-hmm. so there's this inquiry which has these programs which are meant to help but because of the regulations of their own board they have to do things in certain ways. So then you have families which are facing these losses absolutely devastated by the just legal loopholes they have you know, to hop The bureaucracy through. of it, yeah, right? Yeah, the bureaucracy. Yeah. yeah. Wow. That's, uh, I mean, even if, like, to personalize it for me, I don't think I would want to speak. It would take me some time to speak. Like, uh, grieving mm-hmm. is not uh, an easy process, and it takes a remarkably strong person to have the courage to come out and tell their story um so for me like that seems a little far-fetched in and of itself to 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 expect families to come in and and give their story i mean there's there are certainly there are some individuals who would be willing to do so but i wouldn't expect it to receive a high turnout and even considering the the remoteness of some of our communities like you were saying a lot of these communities are fly in um, you get there by boat. There's no real access to to Canada, if you will. Um, and I, I mean, I understand and appreciate where you're coming from, but uh, your your sister spoke at a rally that we organized right here in in St. Catharines, and I mean, her words were ferocious and they were powerful and they were heartfelt. But it was clear she she expected the government to put every asset that they had into this missing and murdered Indigenous women inquiry. 
I believe that it's ultimately a good thing that the government did call for the inquiry quickly. I think that the media should be very careful in their scrutiny, that that a mostly white media should be very careful about how they they scrutinize an indigenous-led operation. I mean, I'm not not gonna lie, there there have definitely been some problems with the inquiry, Mm -hmm. but this is a fundamentally complicated issue. And and when you look at the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, they had a similar start. Like they, they had a lot of problems getting it going. But if you give it the time and the resources and the effort and the initiative and especially allow this to be led by the families of the missing and murdered Indigenous women, this is something that if if Canada wants to truly be a great nation, then this is something that Canada needs to throw every resource behind. Yeah, I completely agree, especially in the uh, the point of this needing to be an Indigenous-led initiative. Um, I could explain to a woman about period cramps and pregnancy and all of this. And I can explain it very well from a learned position, but because I'm not a woman, I cannot give the same perspective that a woman speaking on the same subject would be able to give. So the same logic lies with indigenous led initiatives in this, um, in this arena where we can have well-meaning colonists come and say, we feel for you. We have these resources and these teachings available. That's great. It's useful, but it's not what we need. What we need is to see that we as a people are actually solving our own issues, if not solving them, at least addressing them in a way which is known to our peoples. Before we take a break for a quick message, can you can you tell us one more time what exactly people can do to support this walk? Um, one of the things that you can do to support this walk is to actually participate. Uh, financial uh, contributions are greatly appreciated, of course, but it goes further than that. We need people to be aware of this issue. So for our community members, our peoples on reserve, our peoples in the cities, if you know that you have a cousin, a niece, a daughter, a sister, anyone out there in the streets, find them, bring them home. Let them know that it's okay and that their suffering is understandable. Don't shame them. We've left too many of our family in the streets. We've left too many of our family members in brothels, working, you know, selling themselves. That needs to end. That is a part of the colonist society that we never had. We need to return to our traditional values of family and family cohesion. And in the return to our traditional settings, there we will find the solution to this problem. Yonko, uh, if you like One Dish, One Mike, then you're definitely going to like this next show that we're going to talk about. Hey, this is Trevor from Niagara Podcasters Network. A healthy community has many sources of news and information. Here at NPN, we're creating locally sourced, locally produced news content, and we're excited to tell you about The Regional, our first program on NPN News. The Regional is a weekly news show that's a political potpourri. It's a municipal menagerie. It is a local smorgasbord of interviews, panel discussions, and in-depth analysis. You can find The Regional by looking for it in Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or the podcast app of your choice. Or you can find us on niagarapodcasters.org slash regional. The Regional, Niagara's news magazine, only on Niagara Podcasters Network. Welcome back. We we were actually talking on the break amongst ourselves while well, you guys are listening to that awesome commercial. Uh, we were talking about www.indigenous150plus.com. That's the word indigenous, 
the numbers 150 and the word PLUS, indigenous150plus.com is a website where you can go to learn more information about really, uh, I would say, exceptional allies working with members of our local indigenous community to bring to bring Brandon here. Um, we haven't even, we've gotten 20 minutes into the show and we haven't even introduced our, our guest. I don't, I don't even think that- uh, who, who, are you? <laughs> who are you? Who are you? Here. What do you want? Exactly. Who let you in? <laughs> And then there was a voice of an angel. <laughs> and there was. Uh, so yeah, my name is Brandon Emerson. Um, I have had the honor of working with Joanne Fishburn. She is the lady who is in charge of the Indigenous 150 Plus. And she initially started this program to help put Native voices in the center of the talks on the truth and reconciliation. And her participation has been immense, like involved on so many levels and actively going everywhere that she could possibly find a venue, um, welcoming in indigenous filmmakers to present our side of the story, essentially. And it's through her participation that we've actually been able to reach out to a few senators, uh, a few Métis senators as well. And just a larger base of individuals that we may not have been able to speak to before. And one of the main tools that uh, Joanne and the Indigenous 150 Plus use is movies. Um, videos as a tool to open dialogue in between the issues we as an Indigenous community face and the outside world at large. Um, as you may be aware, most people outside of the indigenous community aren't necessarily aware of Standing Rock. I've had people be like, oh, what's what's Standing Rock? Is is that a monument? And it's yeah. like, well, it probably will be in the future. Yeah. But, oh, We're not there yet. Yeah. <laughs> um, so things like that, like uh, Muskrat Falls, like a lot of people have no idea of the issues that we actually face on a daily basis. So it's through these film series that um, we've been able to open a dialogue in between our community and the colonist community to be able to actually work towards reconciliation on a real personal, personable level instead of it being some closed door action where government officials say, oh, yeah, we've reconciled. There's truth. Uh, <laughs> this way we bring it to the community. So we put it into the individual's hands. We open a dialogue and we speak to them honestly. And it's through those discussions where they're able to actually ask questions that ordinarily you can't ask an indigenous person, mm -hmm. right? And it's done so in an environment where there is no judgment. It's a frank discussion. And it's through these frank discussions where we actually see the reality of one person compared to what we had initially thought before. Um, there are individuals that will see me and be like, oh, he's just a protester. Mm -hmm. And it's like, yeah, well, not only am I an activist, but I'm also an advocate. And besides that, I'm also a human. Right. And that humanizing effect of these conversations is one of the more useful things that I've seen come out of this. Whereas individuals before have made assumptions as to our funding and then realize that it's not funding. It's that these are monies owed due to the sale of resources based on treaties. To explain that 
those special privileges we have aren't privileges, but they're actually treaty rights that our ancestors died for and have recently continued to fight for. So when we can change the narrative of the discussion and utilize this conversation to not advance our cause, but only to bring it to the table to be understood, then we can reach forward into this colonist uh, society to say, this is not your land, but you are here. You are guests here. So let us work together in this new relationship where both people can prosper and we're not left behind, but yet you're also not feeling taken advantage of. So it's a hard road to yeah. walk. You I, use the word you use the word prosperity, which was a favorite buzzword of of the last government, yeah. right? Like the the Harper Canadian government would talk a lot about a path to prosperity. Yeah. But I think that from an indigenous value standpoint, I, I think that our notion of prosperity and the Western notion of prosperity are are different things, right? Yeah. Like if Dakota Access doesn't get built, if Line Ten gets stopped right here, it's a local issue. Yeah. So mm-hmm. The Thundering Waters Forest gets saved if muskrat falls, if they raise awareness, if grassy narrows gets the mercury out of the ground and yeah. out of the water and, and out of the fish, then I think I think that's our notion of prosperity. And right. It's a yeah. little different. But I know that you you have a compelling personal investment. Like were you were you always this personally invested in these types of movements? Um truthfully no. A few years ago I would have been a stereotypical Indian. Um heavily involved in crime and drugs and just victimization. I I lived in that victim state of mind and then i um i killed myself (laughs) i had intentionally overdosed and as we're aware suicide is a huge issue within our community um but after that when i was revived i just i knew that everything i had done before was the wrong way that life is not like to me i understand now that life is about living for others and about doing good regardless of recognition. So for the past two years, uh, since my revival, I've been actively involved in almost every initiative that has come up, whether it be our initiative or the Black Lives Matter, or just resisting the the fascist uh, alt-right. Now in this new life, I see the path that perhaps we were meant to walk the entire time. So I feel fortunate in that fact that because of the traumas that I experienced, it has led me to this position here. And I would like to say that that's a unique story, but unfortunately it's not. There are many members of our community who have lost everything, either from a family member dying or going missing or in their own personal lives. And what I've noticed is the individuals that are on the front lines of these issues are the ones that have been damaged, are the ones that have gone through substance abuse, are the ones who have been suicidal, who have lost people to suicide, who have lost people to the missing and murdered Indigenous women's plight. These hurt, broken people are the ones that are leading the way forward. Uh, LaDonna. LaDonna had her family's tribal burial ground destroyed by energy transfer partners uh, during the Dakota Access Pipeline. A horrible, horrible thing to experience. But in that, she has now become one of the leading voices of environmental activism within our communities. 
Um, I had the pleasure of meeting a young lady named Delia Saunders, who we spoke of earlier, not online, uh, not on air, but her sister was doing a paper on missing and murdered indigenous women. And she ended up becoming one of those statistics herself. So we see people who take the personal loss and tragedy in their life. And instead of wallowing in it and continuing to be the victim or, you know, contributing to lateral violence within their family based on these experiences, instead they're rising up. They're using these things which ordinarily would bring someone down to lift others up. It's so powerful. It is. Really is. We have a segment on this show where at the end of every episode, I mean, this, this, uh, we're over half an hour and it, <laughs> this time has just flown by. I, yeah. I feel like we could tape three or four shows about, about just the tip of the iceberg mm-hmm. of some really important topics that we've gotten into, but, but we are, we're, we're almost out of time here. So we have a segment that we do on the show called traveling thoughts, where we try to send our listeners away with some sort of positive or, or uplifting message and some like a friendly epilogue for the <laughs> show. So, um, as our as our guest, would you like to share your your traveling thought with our listeners? Uh, yeah, it's the one thing I I push all the time, and it's you do not need permission to do what is right. If you see something that is wrong, stand up, even if you're standing alone. If you hear something that is wrong, speak up, even if you're speaking alone. Do not be afraid to do the right thing. That's awesome. It is. How do you follow up to that? Yeah, I, I don't know. be like be like Brandon. Yeah. <laughs> My traveling thought is be like Brandon. I, say, I don't think you do. <laughs> Mic drop. <laughs> I, I I'm gonna leave it on on that note. Then actually, yeah. no, I agree. Yeah, we had well one, said one traveling thought that was really so. <laughs> but it, it speaks for all of us. Brandon spoke for all of us. <laughs> it was a great honor to to have you on the show when you're back in the Niagara region, which I hope is often doing all kinds of awesome work like the work you did with Indigenous 150 plus. I encourage you to come back yeah. to the One Dish One Mic studio and and give let, us an update. Yeah, yeah let, us, let, let us know. Yeah, yeah I'm sure. down with that. Yeah, perfect. For sure. So you've you've been listening to myself, Carl Oxsider, and myself, Sean Vanderclus, and this, myself, Brandon Emerson. Thank you very much for coming. This has been One Dish One Mic on the Niagara Podcasters Network, which is hosted in the Pop-Up Podcast Studio <laughs> at Cowork Niagara is is a collective of workers trying to do good things. And they're led by Trevor, who produces these shows, puts a lot of sweat equity into them, helps us with ideas, and is really trying to build a true collective. So if you have an opportunity to support Trevor and to support Cowork Niagara in the same way that it supports One Dish, One Mike, I would encourage all of our listeners to go out and do that. Also, don't forget to click like, share, and comment on our shows so that we can build on the dialogue and, and have these broader conversations. Thank you Beautiful. very much. Nyawa, Nagiwa. Love you guys. Thanks for listening to One Dish, One Mic on the Niagara Podcasters Network. Your hosts are Carl Dockstader and Sean Vanderclus. Recording is done at the Pop-Up Podcast Studio at Cowork Niagara, home of Niagara's independent workforce. Executive producer is Trevor Twining. Production assistance by Daniel Twining. Show artwork by Mitch Baird. Music by DJ Shub, used with permission. If you have show ideas or comments, you can reach us on Twitter at Niagara Podcasts.